Well, this morning, I, I want to do something a little different. I'm not sure how this is going to work, but I want to try and start off a little bit interactive. Um, so I know people online can't hear how you might answer things, but I'm going to give a bit of a quiz. I'm going to read some statements, and I want you to tell me who you think each of these statements applies to, um, who this speaks about. So the first is this, to promote student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness by fostering educational excellence and ensuring equal access. Any idea who that might be for? That's the Department of Education, okay? This next one you might be able to get. To refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and actions, and to create value and make a difference. That's Coca-Cola, okay? All right, maybe maybe this one. Think of the day we are in, okay? We unite people and inspire communities in the joy of the game by delivering the world's most exciting sports and entertainment experience. NFL. All right, we got one. We're one for three so far. I don't think we're going to go two for four. So the last one here is to deliver superior quality products and services for our customers and communities through leadership, innovation, and partnerships. No idea, right? Because that's a little vague. That's actually Wendy's. Um, so apparently quality is what's supposed to get there. But I, I didn't think you'd get that because it's a little more vague. It's a little difficult. But these are all mission statements for organizations. A mission is probably best defined as a specific task with which a, a group or a, a person is charged. And organizations or groups like we just read will state this in order to, so to speak, keep, the eye on, keep their eye on the ball so that they know where they're going. It, it also helps people to know what a group is committed to and then what is expected of them if they choose to become a part of that group or organization. And it seems that you can look it up online. It's actually, I think, missionstatement.com lists all these groups and their mission statements, and it actually analyzes them. Um, but, but most companies or organizations have some type of mission statement. I probably should have done GE and seen if like the workers here knew what GE's mission statement was. Um, so glad I didn't. But the question I have for us though today is, does the church have a mission statement? What is the mission of the church? As we're going through this short series on the church and re-engaging in the life of the church, this is probably something important for us to know. Now, Living Hope, we have a mission statement. It flows out of our vision. Our vision statement is this. We exist to glorify God and faithfully love our neighbor with minds, hearts, and hands engaged because of the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then our mission, as I said, flows out of that. We do this, we fulfill our vision by making disciples of Jesus Christ through life in biblical community where the gospel of grace is powerfully taught and exhibited. But the question is, is our mission consistent with that of the church? Is it consistent with that of the the universal church? And depending on who you talk to, you'll hear different opinions on what people believe the church is called to do. It's been a question that has been discussed and debated more than you probably would have thought. 
And perhaps part of that reason for that is because the church has been very influential in a lot of different areas. It's had its hand in a lot of areas historically. Think, think about this. Historically, church, or hospitals and orphanages started because of the Christian church. But it's also been instrumental in sending medical aid and provisions to war-torn regions and caring for the refugee and so much more. But the question still remains is what is the mission of the church? What is the most essential activity? Because there is, I think, there's one thing that the church does that no one else can do. That no other entity has the ability or the charge to undertake. And that one thing is what we're going to look at this morning. We could find it in numerous places, but today I'd ask you to turn with me to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 just going to read verses 44 through 49. Then he, then Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Many opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word this morning. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you'd help us to see it, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would strengthen me and fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word clearly. Lord, apart from you, these, these words will, will not be right, but they'll also fall on deaf ears. So I pray that you would strengthen this morning all of us to proclaim and to hear your word well. Would you do this for your glory and for our good and joy? In Christ's name, amen. Well, from that text, I want us to see two things. The mission of Jesus and the mission of the church. Those two things. Because, one, I don't believe we can accurately come to the second, to the mission of the church, without understanding the first. And my hope is that we're going to walk away this morning, not only with greater clarity as to the mission of the church, but also with a heart enlarged to participate in that mission. So to set the stage for where we are in this text, this is the end of Luke's gospel account. It's post-resurrection. Mary and the other women have been witnesses to the empty tomb as were Peter and John. And then here in Luke, uh, Luke is recording this experience right before where we are of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They have left Jerusalem the day of the resurrection on and, and headed towards Emmaus. They're distraught over what has happened. They're, they're confused because they've been told the tomb is empty, but you can tell that they, they don't totally understand it because they're actually leaving the city. And while traveling, they're met on the road. They're met on the road by Jesus, whom they are kept from recognizing. And he listens to them. But then he also opens up the scriptures to the point where their hearts burned within them and, and they, they went to eat together. And when Jesus blessed and broke the bread, their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. And now Jesus has come among the disciples and he's declared to them in 2436, peace to you 
peace to you. And they're, they're frightened. They're, they're taken aback by his appearance and words. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that they're, they're troubled and they're even doubting in their hearts as to what's going on. So he, he shows him, them his wounds and he asks for food and he eats in front of them to show that he's not some disembodied spirit. And then as we come to verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, so in in all of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Now, when you hear that, I think there's actually this this air of, of correction and a bit of puzzlement on his part. Calvin wrote of this. He said, the import of his words is, Why do you hesitate as if this had been a new and unexpected occurrence while it was only what I frequently predicted to you? Why do you not rather remember my words? For if hitherto you have reckoned me worthy of credit, this ought to have been known to you from my instructions before it happened. In short, Christ tacitly complains that his labor has been thrown away on the apostles since his instruction has been forgotten." You see, Jesus had clearly taught the disciples, at least it's clear to us now, okay? In hindsight, it's it's very clear what he taught of his impending betrayal and death and resurrection. But but in their paradigm, in in their mindset, in their Jewish mindset, and and their conception of a Messiah and what the Messiah could and would do, it, it didn't register. It just didn't register with them. And after Peter confessed in, in chapter 9 of, of, of Luke, that, that Jesus was the Christ. This is what Luke wrote in 9.21. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That seems fairly clear to us. A little further on in chapter 9, starting in verse 30, 43, we read, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. But you know what? There's, st- there's still actually more. You go to chapter 18, starting in verse 31. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Folks, this is what he taught. And, and so... Um, he now walks them through the Scriptures. He, he in essence, gives them a lesson in, in biblical theology, tracing the thread of the Messiah throughout, tracing how the Scriptures speak of Him. And perhaps He took them again to the book of Isaiah. You know, we think back to Isaiah chapter 4. Jesus actually stands up and, and He reads from the Isaiah scroll. He's in the synagogue and He reads from the scroll. He actually reads verses, or chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And then He sits down. The people's eyes are fixed upon Him. And He says, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In John 5, it's recorded of Him being in dialogue with the Jews. And He says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that they may have life. So you see this teaching over and over again that the disciples repeatedly had heard these things. Yet Jesus' teaching about himself did not, uh, uh, about his impending death and resurrection, it just, they didn't grasp it. So thankfully, we come to verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They desperately needed this work of God in their lives. If we go back actually to chapter 18, where I just read a few moments ago, verse 34 states, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, this might seem a little odd that these guys who'd been with Jesus for three years didn't grasp something so clear that seems so clear to us. But I think about it. Think, think about the book of Psalms. The, the book of Psalms is filled with, with writers who have a deep devotion and deep love for the Lord. They, they know Him. One of, one of the greatest Psalms, Psalm 119 this, this psalm praising God and praising the Scriptures and the Word of God. What is written in that? Verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. I, I know you. I, I know you already, but, but Lord, please open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Folks, this is the work of Illumination the work of God in our lives. And and with the disciples, Christ did that for them. He opened their minds to grasp more of the fullness of the truth of Scripture. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, this work. But this is the continual work of the Spirit in the minds of believers. We need this. It's, It's not inspiration. It's not writing something new. It is us coming to grasp what's already been written and given to us. I love what Matthew Henry wrote about illumination. He said, The design of opening the understanding is that we may understand the Scriptures, not that we we may be wise above what is written, but that we may be wiser in what is written and may be made wise to salvation by it. The Spirit in the Word and the Spirit in the heart say the same thing. Christ's scholars never learn above their Bibles in this world but they need to be learning still more and more out of their Bibles and to grow more ready and mighty in the Scriptures, that we might have right thoughts of Christ and have our mistakes concerning Him rectified. There needs no more than to be made to understand the Scriptures. I love that. We, we don't know more, more beyond our Bibles. We know more and more of our Bibles, of the revelation of God graciously given to us. And without this, we may have heaps and heaps of knowledge, but no understanding. In college, I I would have been a religious studies minor, uh, but I decided I couldn't continue to take classes from some of the folks. They had so much knowledge of Scripture, but yet they didn't know Jesus. Their hearts had not been opened up. Their minds had not been illumined to the truth of Scripture. They had not been brought together to see all of this. They had hardened hearts. But all of this does then beg a question for us, particularly in regards to the disciples. 
was Christ's teaching of the disciples for three years a basic waste of time? No. Okay, that's no is the answer. But why? One, even without understanding of what he had taught at that time, they had years of teaching that would be brought together as the Spirit opened up their minds. Years of, of, of teaching, years of having Jesus tell them things, and, and, and even all the background of them knowing the Hebrew Scriptures as, as this thread that's woven throughout all Scripture was opened up and revealed to them. It's, wow, the light goes off. So no, it was not a waste of time. And besides that, this shows us very clearly the power and authority of God in opening up our hearts. And it humbles us because it tells us that it is not our intelligence, it is not our ability, it is not our pedigree, but it is God's grace that gives us the eye to see His glory and His goodness. We're not better than anyone else. Just God has poured out His grace upon us so that we can see. And that should just burst forth into thankfulness. But as we move on in opening their minds, he explained, look at verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here he teaches the crux of Scripture that the Christ must suffer and die. But the death would not hold him. He, he will rise from the dead on the third day. This for the forgiveness of sins that, that people would repent and, and find forgiveness. And surely as, as this thread got opened up, texts like Psalm 22 and 69 and 118 or Isaiah 52, the end of 52 through all of 53, just took on a different character. It's hard to imagine missing the beauty and import of words such as this from Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's just one stanza. <laughs> Jesus opened up to them what his mission was. His mission was not to be what they thought, some revolutionary military hero kicking Rome out and, and, and all their oppressors. It wasn't to be a good moral teacher. It was be, to be the one upon whom the sins of his people were laid. That was his mission, to be our substitute in order to set creation free from its bondage to corruption. This is what the Old Testament Scriptures speak of. It's what they point to. So then, how does this influence, how does this inform then the mission of the church? Look at verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
Now, if we look at this, and, and we're technical, this is not a formal commission yet, but it certainly prepares us for the commission, and it's completely in line with the really specific commissions that are given to the church. When we take this scope of Scripture and we understand that we interpret Scripture with Scripture and we, we, we look at the entire context, particularly similar New Testament passages, we very easily come to the mission of the church that flows out of the mission of Jesus. If you flip to, to Matthew 28, which is where probably most people would want to go if they were looking at the mission of the church, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, what you see in that text here in Matthew is we see the authority of Christ, It's based on his authority to call and command the disciples, and by implication, all believers, because you see it's to the end of the age. And that command is to make disciples. Make disciples is the controlling verb, and and to do that then by going and by baptizing and by teaching the people to observe, not just to know, but actually to obey, to observe all that Christ has commanded And with that command, they are given great comfort, right? The Lord says, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And the same elements really are in our passage in Luke. There is authority. The authority is not so much Christ saying, I have all authority, but it's the authority of the Scriptures, of the Word of God. And the command is implied. It it isn't specifically make disciples, but as witnesses proclaim Proclaim in Christ's name repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then what are we also told? They will be clothed with power from on high. I think that's a clear parallel to the Lord saying, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And all of this, honestly, is further clarified in Luke's second volume. So Luke, Luke and Acts really go together. And so in Acts chapter 1, We read this starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There you see very clearly, you will be witnesses. There's, there's a command. This is, this is what is going to happen. And the Spirit would fall on them, not, not much later, in the power on, on Pentecost. And all of this has significance for the life of every single believer. Folks, this is the mission of the church. It's to make disciples, which one thing, and we've talked about this before, implies that in this process, we are actually becoming more and more disciples of Christ ourselves. We're growing in Christ-likeness. So we are to make disciples. We are to proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And we are to do this, where? To the world. 
to all nations, to the ends of the earth. When are we to do this? Right now and to the end of the age. And why? Well, the why is not stated explicitly, but it's throughout Scripture. It's for God's glory and the good of people. Folks, this is the message of salvation from sin, from the penalty of sin, from an eternity away from the presence of God to bless. It's actually the presence of God to curse. So let me try and sum this up a bit. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church?, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert go through a lot of this stuff, but they define mission of the church in this manner. said, to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. And as we've gone through all that we've gone through, you can see how much that is pulled straight from Scripture. But now let me ask this. Why is it so important to know this? Well, because as I mentioned before, the church is involved in a great many things, many good and necessary things. But without a clear understanding of our ultimate mission, there will be mission drift. Okay? Stephen Nill once stated, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. If everything that everyone wants to do in the church, oh, that's our mission, that's what we've got to do, we don't have a mission. We lost it. We might still be doing really good things, but we've lost the one thing that the church is called to do that only the church can do. Because, folks, there are some who would put the mission of the church much more broadly than what I have just laid out. Some would say that the mission of the church is equivalent with what is called the missio dei, the mission of God. Whatever God does in the world, that is the mission of the church. And on a very broad level, that is actually saying that anyone can be involved in the mission of the church, whether believer or non-believer. Okay? Obviously, I don't agree with that. So, slightly narrower is what we would call maybe the cultural mandate. Flows out of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the whole be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, the, the idea here, though, is, is, is a little bit narrower than what we had before, that the church's mission encompasses everything that Jesus sends his people into the world to do. So this is This one's particularly for the church. It's for God's people, but it could be anything that we're sent out to do. It's love your neighbor. It's it's all these type of things are part of it. And then we could go even a bit more narrow from that in that the church's mission is actually social action. Um, One writer said, he said, while social action is rarely given precise definition, it refers to the alleviation of human suffering and the elimination of injustice, exploitation, and deprivation. It is thus specifically remedial and transformative in a way not necessarily true of all that Christians do to glorify God and His world. Now, all of these ideas, these things are, I would say, good and right in their own context. Okay? Do we want to join God in the work that He's doing in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Do we, do we want to fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply and rule it and subdue it? Yes. 
Do we want to see suffering and oppression alleviated? Yes. Is that the mission of the church? No. Social action or social justice, I think, would be better categorized as love your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Looking to transform, that's, folks, live a faithful Christian life. Don't participate in the deeds of darkness. Don't do shady business deals. Live like a follower of Christ. Live faithfully. But all these things are good, but they are not the mission of the church. If we call all of them the mission of the church, we have lost the mission of the church. It is only the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples that can be done by the church. All of those, you want to build wells in Africa? Go do it, and go do it in Jesus' name. But somebody not in Jesus' name can go build wells in Africa. Only the church can go and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That is our mission. We are the only ones who are called to that and who can do it. And that should keep the church focused on what is of first importance. Now, that doesn't mean that's all we ever do as a church. People in the church, do I want you involved with something like Pathway to Hope? Absolutely. Can I make that a mandate of the church as part of our mission? No. The mandate of our church is go proclaim the gospel and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that the Lord commanded us. That's the mission of the church. It's not that we can, again, we do pursue these other aspects, but we do so as believers, but our mission has to be clear. And folks, that mission is an amazing privilege because, one, we are the only ones who can do it. Not just our church, all believers have this call. It's a privilege, a privilege to proclaim to people that there is hope, and peace, that there is life. And so many of those other things help add. They, they, I don't want to say they illuminate, but it's the best word I can think of off the top of my head right now. They illuminate the gospel for people. They're used by God to say, yeah, these are people who aren't just loving in word, but they'll love in deed as well. But we have to proclaim the gospel. Folks, some of you have heard that old adage, um, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Please don't ever say that, okay? You can only preach the gospel with words, okay? The gospel is a message of salvation, okay? Live your life in such a way that adorns the gospel, that, that makes it beautiful, that, that people see your good works and glorify God, but you have to proclaim the gospel because it's not a message we do. It's not something we tell people to do. It's something we say, repent and believe the one who lived this for you. And what a privilege we have to do that. Really to say, Jesus loves you and he reigns, come to him. That, that's the message in so many ways. He reigns, He loves people, repent and believe and have life. 
That is the privilege we have as the church. Let us not drift from that mission. Let us be people who proclaim the Lord reigns and calls people to come to Him. Let's pray. Father, give us strength. Give us strength to stay focused, to stay in line with what You call us to as a church. Yes, as individuals, we, we want to serve in so many other ways and, and, and love our community and serve it. Things like the Christmas store. But Lord, we want to stay focused on the mission you call us to. Sharing the truth of the gospel of life. That, that, that we know that without it, people are, are lost. They, they are bound for an eternity separated from, from your blessing and your goodness and your presence. Lord, Convict our hearts of slothfulness. May we go, may we labor on, spend and be spent in what you call us to. Lord, work that in our hearts, in our minds, to the very depths of our person. That those around us who do not know you, or there's one thing that will truly make a difference in their life. And that's Jesus. That's the gospel. So work in our hearts, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.